Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. This recording starts after the session has already begun. I'm uh, Lynn Peoples. I'm an environmental health-focused freelance journalist and background in uh, some biostatistics at HSPH, which is represented here, which is very exciting. And I've been covering environmental health-related issues for going on about a decade, was the environmental health reporter at HuffPost for a few years and have been freelancing for the most recent years and have been covering endocrine disruptors, including BPA, been working with Brian on a piece for EHN on that. I'm Pat Hunt. I'm from Washington State University. I'm, I understand now, a science nerd. <laughs> um, I run a research lab there. I was trained as a human geneticist, and I'm interested in reproduction, and my work got co-opted by an exposure to bisphenol A over 20 years ago, and it changed my life and my research. Hi, I'm Tamara James Todd. I'm an environmental reproductive epidemiologist at Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Um, my research mainly focuses in on the role of environmental endocrine disrupting chemicals as it relates to women's reproductive health outcomes, um, as well as looking at vulnerable populations within the context of that. I am Joe Rochester. I um, currently work for ICF, which is a consulting company that does a lot of um, government contracts for EPA and NDP and things like that. Um, recently worked for TEDx, which is the Endocrine Disruptor Exchange, which is a, a group that unfortunately had to close its doors. Um, but I can talk a little bit about the resources they have still available. And um, yeah, I've done a lot of work with uh, BPA, just kind of happened to kind of fall into that and um, a lot of review articles and systematic reviews on BPA and human health. Great. And I do want to point out that uh, Joe brought some um, handouts in the back from TEDx that are, if you've never covered endocrine disrupting chemicals, they're a really great place to start. They kind of give you a rundown. And maybe that's a good place to start here. I know most of you probably have some background, but uh, if, if one of you just kind of want to tell us what do we, what, what are we talking about when we talk about endocrine disrupting compounds and why they're concerning? <laughs> Jump in there. So... Uh, endocrine disrupting compounds is a terrible uh, phrase, a terrible title, and um, I would encourage anyone writing about it to think of a different way to put it. <laughs> um, a lot of people don't know what the endocrine system is. It's uh, your hormones, uh, hormone system. People don't necessarily know what hormones are. Um, I, uh, Theo Colborn, as, who is a pioneer in this field, uh, founded TEDx. She was one of the people that found, uh, came up with the... Um, uh, name, I guess, endocrine disruptors, and she kind of regretted it ever since because it's not accessible to people. But anyway, <laughs> that's my little soapbox there. Um, they're chemicals that uh, can mimic or mess up, disrupt um, the natural hormone signaling in the body. So you might have heard of estrogen, testosterone, thyroid. There's all kinds of hormones in the body, every single system you can think of respiratory system, uh, circulatory system, um, reproductive, of course, anything you can think of metabolic um, is influenced by hormones. Um, so these are chemicals that can 
disrupt, act like them in very, very tiny amounts. Um, so if you're thinking of a toxic chemical that maybe can kill someone or cause cancer, these chemicals can act in much lower uh, doses and amounts, and we're finding they can get to every part of your body and affect them. So I don't know. That's good. No, that's a good, that's <laughs> okay. a good overview. And, um, and so what, I, what I'm hearing and what I understand is that these aren't, um, these aren't behaving like normal toxics so that we think like mercury and lead, so they're not... Um, so they're maybe not regulated in the same way. And I was wondering if Joe or whomever can speak to um, kind of the regulation or lack thereof for these chemicals and why their behavior in our bodies makes them difficult to fit in our current regulatory structure. So I think one of the challenges for regulation is that these chemicals sort of defy the logic that our basic reproductive or that our basic toxicology testing is, is founded on which is essentially the dose makes the poison. If a little bit's bad, a lot's going to kill you. And because these act more like hormones, they don't respond like that. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges. And it's certainly challenged the, re the regulatory system. And it's been recognized for, gosh, over a decade that we need to change the way we test chemicals. But we don't have new tests. And so, his, historically speaking, we think of um, we think of these toxics. Um, we, you know, I'm thinking coal plants and and and, and bad water and things are, are often found in poor neighborhoods, often disproportionately harming low income communities of color. Um, so, given that most of us are, are exposed to these endocrine disrupting compounds, or, or I should use a different term. Um, <laughs> But I'm wondering if we can kind of talk about the environmental justice aspects of this and who is being harmed um, and, and what that looks like. So around the time that these chemicals, in fact, I think about maybe four or five years ago, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of endocrine disrupting chemical uh, research um, uh, with the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. Um, it was noted that um, much of the work kind of came out of ecologic um, research where we were seeing environmental chemicals, which I'll kind of coin a new <laughs> word maybe uh, or term, um, being able to perturb um, you know, various uh, findings in wildlife. And so it was thought that these were um, either anti-androgenic or estrogenic and kind of leaving it at that. Um, the male... Um, kind of reproductive system was heavily studied. And what was often left out of conversation was women. And this is an ongoing issue with research in general that women um, have been understudied in general, um, oftentimes because of our hormonal fluctuations. And so when you're thinking about something like endocrine disrupting chemicals or environmental chemicals that perturb the endocrine system, um, I would say one um, population that has been understudied and is somewhat vulnerable to these um, um, chemicals in that we, due to social patterning, are more exposed to many of them that are found in a variety of consumer products, such as personal care products. And so um, in thinking about that, there's, in the last decade or so, been increasing awareness around looking at women um, and women's health outcomes, but also at um, minority populations as well. So the other thing in the field of epidemiology we do a great job of is documenting difference. We show uh, that there are differences in exposures. We look at these chemical exposures in blood and urine samples, and we do have biomonitoring that is done by the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. So we know that there are differences uh, by racial ethnic group, by socioeconomic status, and so on. Um, but folks haven't really been asking why. 
And so one of the things that we've been really trying to do within our own group, but what I would encourage you all to do is to, in thinking about um, you know, environmental justice issues, really trying to get to the why because many of these things are socially driven and culturally patterned. And when you start thinking about vulnerable populations and issues around environmental justice, um, we have to think about this. And I'll just give you one little um, story that comes from some of the work that we did um, now about 10 years ago, but has um, propelled forward in the last year or so. Um, one of the things that we started off, or the reason why we started off in this area was because there was a case study that came out from a pediatric endocrinologist. He was seeing children um, for African-American girls who ranged in age from four months old to four years old, and they all had breast and pubic hair, clearly well before you know you would anticipate anyone having pubertal development. And uh, there wasn't really a clear reason as to why, but you know he's a physician, so he inquired what was going on, um, what was being, what were the children being exposed to in the homes, was there a family history, and lo and behold, what he found out was that maybe, just maybe, his hunch was right that it was the hair products that were being used on these young African American girls, and he sent it out for chemical testing, and it contained three different forms of estrogen. So we followed up that study, um, like I said, about 10 years ago to look at, um, uh, it's called the Greater New York Care Product Study, but we looked at this and what we did find was that um, hair product use was associated with earlier onset of menarche or when a girl starts her period. We saw that black children and black women were uh, using these products more and that they were using products that contained more hormones, so more uh, fragrance-based products as well as placenta-based products which are marketed to the black community. Um, so these are some of the things in getting to why. Why do you see these environmental injustices? Why do you see differences in the patterning and in the biomonitoring of these chemicals? This is part of it. And these are socially driven factors. People don't know that these things are in their products because the companies do not have to disclose that information currently. Yeah, just a couple other thoughts. And I'm curious um, from you guys if there's been any research on this. But thinking about lower income communities and some of the sources of endocrine disruptors, um, I understand flame retardants can disrupt the endocrine system and old couches are a key source, release a lot more of those flame retardants. So maybe we find more of those in poor households. And as Pat has found out from experience, degraded plastic is more prone to release the chemicals. So I'm wondering if, you know, used products um, and such would be maybe more likely to to cause exposures and might be more um, more present in lower income households. Um, another population to think about are um, farm workers and their families. And there's been a lot of research in California. Um, I think San Joaquin Valley area. Um, showing these um, kids and wives of farm workers and them themselves um, during pregnancy and such are being exposed to um, things like chlorpyrifos, which was a chemical that was up for um, considering being banned but then was put through by the EPA during this administration. So that's a um, pretty interesting area of research as well. So you have the poorer rural areas as well being exposed to um, pesticides and herbicides used on in agriculture. So just to add one happy note to this, um, I get asked rather frequently, well, isn't there some control population, some really unexposed population in the world? And the answer is no. I work on plasticizers, and they 
are pervasive in the world, as you've seen from some of the recent stories. And although there are major differences in populations and some individuals are much more highly exposed to specific chemicals than others, I don't think we can assume that there is an unexposed segment of the population. Just to get in the weeds a little bit, because uh, you are, it does sound kind of dire, right? Um, and, and, and we're talking about um, personal care products and other things that we could go in the, in the student store right now and buy, uh, presumably. So I'm wondering, uh, why isn't the government, uh, why aren't we regulating these? Why don't we have to be told that these are in our products? Why is it, um, you know, because I'm assuming most consumers think that everything's safe that they buy. I think that they think that the regulatory system is set up to protect us. If it was really bad, they would do something about it. And the problem is it's, it's upside down and backwards. You know, the onus is on the regulators to demonstrate harm rather than on the producers to demonstrate that it's safe before it goes onto the market. And until we change that, we have a major problem. So I think that's, that's a key issue. But additionally, as I mentioned, our regulatory system doesn't work very well for these chemicals because of the assumptions we make about how people are exposed, how we metabolize these things, and that there is going to be a dose response. And it, these chemicals just don't behave quite like toxic chemicals that we, that we started testing for, that, that we just wanted to know how much is it going to take to kill us. I would jump in here. Um, we're talking about a dose response, and that means um, when you get a certain amount of chemical or anything in your body, you will, you'll see a response, um, whether it be good or bad. Um, a lot of times in toxicology, we think the more you give an animal, a human, the worse it'll be. So you see this line going up. Um, with endocrine-disrupting chemicals, sometimes you'll see a U-shaped curve or an inverted U-shaped curve, where a tiny amount may have just as bad consequences as a large amount. And in some cases, those are amounts that are not even tested. They're so small. All right, just to elaborate on that. So if the um, FDA, EPA is testing a chemical, they'll start at a really high dose, correct me if I'm wrong, really high dose, incrementally drop that till they don't see effects in your the test animal. And then they'll usually cut that down by another margin for safety. And they're like, we're being very conservative by cutting it way down, but yet they've never actually tested, as Joe said, at a lower dose. And just along those same lines, the effects that you see at those higher doses um, are very different oftentimes than the effects that you may see at the lower doses. So, for example, um, they weren't really looking for things that maybe um, are metabolic disruptors um, that would increase the risk of obesity or um, change your risk of diabetes. Those were not outcomes. They were looking more, you know, maybe at neurotoxic effects or other things that would be much more systemic. Um, so it, just to note that there, there are differences even in what outcomes you might be specifically looking for at different levels and dosages of the chemicals. And this would be a good time to quote. Uh, so, so Pat, uh, you were part of a webinar um, that, uh, full disclosure, my boss, boss, um, I, I think was involved in too. But you said if the FDA were to acknowledge, uh, by the way, I invited the FDA, I guess I should say that. <laughs> they didn't call me or email me or, or send me snail mail even. But um, if the FDA were to acknowledge that its own data show statistically significant adverse effects at the lowest dose tested, they would have 
they would have to lower the estimate of what's safe 20,000-fold beneath the current level. I believe this was in regards to, to BPA. Um, but, I mean, that's a stunning uh, stunning number. I, I was wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that a little bit and if that extrapolates to other compounds too. So this does get us into the weeds because, as many of you may know, the federal government put a lot of money into testing the, 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 the final test for BPA, Clarity BPA. And it was a huge test designed to understand why there's a disconnect between research and people like me and the types of classic toxicological tests we do to say, is this chemical, what's the risk this chemical poses? And those tests really suggest there's not real, very much evidence of harm for BPA. So Clarity was put in place to say, let's, f let's figure out why there's a disconnect. Let's run the same, let's run the two types of tests on, on the same groups of animals. And actually Clarity has muddied the waters more than it's clarified them. Um, because at the very lowest dose, there were effects seen in all studies. The FDA has dismissed these doses, be, these, these effects, because they can't really wrap their brains around them because they didn't see the, the same evidence of the same effect at slightly higher doses. But as we've just said, this is not how hormones work, and this is not how these hormone-like chemicals work. Um, so it's a huge problem in the field, and it's one of a, a mindset of classic toxicology and the use of tools that are really outdated tools, the kinds of tools that those classic tests use are, okay, let's take out the heart. How much does it weigh? What does it look like? What does histologically, what happens when we cut sections? Does it look like a normal heart? Versus the kinds of tests that we run our, in our laboratories now, which is what's the gene expression profile in this tissue like? You know, what's the epigenome like? And these kinds of very sensitive tests give us really stunning answers that these chemicals induce major changes, which we can see before birth, and then we can see the effects in the adult in terms of, you know, weight, metabolism, cancer risk, et cetera. Um, so it's like a revolution in toxicology that is underway but hasn't really happened yet. So, so Tamara, you mentioned um, uh, that, that women have been uh, understudied, and, uh, and, and I'm wondering if, if one of you or, or if you could start talking about um, pregnant women specifically and, and how this impacts a developing fetus if, it's, if these compounds are passing through the placenta. And um, so, so that's a thank you for that question. Um, I think that again, women in general weren't studied, and certainly thinking about sensitive time periods and critical windows. Um, so, this there's a whole idea of developmental origins um, of disease, um, and so in the in that concept, really um, comes from work that was done um, some time ago, thinking about nutrition-based outcomes and how that could impact. Uh, fetal growth and child health. Um, so over the last, I would say again, about 10, 20 years, there's been uh, looking at these chemicals and what their impacts may be on the developing fetus um, and implications for child health outcomes. And we've seen a variety of things ranging from um, behavioral changes um, and other neurological outcomes, obesity-related um, changes, as well as um, other metabolic risk factors um, as well. Um, but what I 
not to say child's health is not uh, important. It absolutely is. And so we know that prenatal exposure is really important. But what has been left out of discussion and where the field is now uh, changing a bit, in fact, the National Institutes of Health just released a, um, a grant announcement to look specifically at pregnancy as a vulnerable period for women. And so thinking about that, one of the things we know, for example, is that if a woman develops gestational diabetes during pregnancy, which typically resolves after delivery, that that woman is seven times more likely to go on to develop type 2 diabetes. And that's within the first 10 or so years of having had that pregnancy. We also know that many of these chemicals we've been talking about, um, bisphenol A, some of the phthalates, are associated with things like diabetes. And so increasingly, um, there's been an awareness of studying the complications of pregnancy. And now with this new announcement, studying women following a pregnancy uh, beyond into the postpartum period where women have to return to normal and what might these chemicals do during that return to normal time period and how that, how might that impact their long-term risk of chronic disease, not just for diabetes, but things like breast cancer, for example. So could pregnancy be a sensitive and vulnerable time period? And finally, what are the implications with respect to what is ongoing with respect to the maternal health crisis? So I'm sure many of you all know that we are having a crisis here in this country. Our maternal mortality rates are much, much higher than other developed countries. And might these chemicals be contributing in some indirect or direct ways with their increasing risk of um, various pregnancy complications or long-term health implications? I would just say, too, that um, as a pregnant person, you know, getting prenatal care, talking to doctors, there is zero, um, pretty much zero uh, comments about, you know, what you can be doing to reduce chemical exposure. I mean, they talk about nicotine. They talk about alcohol. I actually have a friend and I, who's a doctor, and I talked to her about this, and she said, well, I'm trying to keep my patients off of meth during their pregnancy, so I'm not going to talk to them about these other chemicals. And to me, that kind of gets back to it's not really pregnant women's job to try to avoid chemicals. They don't really know where they are. They're in consumer products. Products. It's the government and it's um, companies putting these chemicals into things that need to be protecting women more, I think. But, it, I mean, there, there are steps you can take personally to avoid exposures, but it's, it seems pretty unfair to me that this is put on pregnant women along with everything else they have to do to, to stay healthy for their babies. So uh, a lot of this conference has been about climate change. I'm sure you've all noticed that. And um, I hear from climate reporters a lot about how do you personalize the story? And I want to say, try covering endocrine disruptors, <laughs> right? Uh, so so I, I want to start with Lynn here, but I would really be curious to hear from um, the scientists as well that, um, I mean, this is a really hard story to tell. I've been, I've been doing it for eight years, and, and to try to personalize it and stuff is really difficult. So. Um, how, how would you recommend journalists tell the story to engage readers, make them care, um, especially now, you, you know, I was just talking to Pat over breakfast that we're moving, you know, now we're in the last few years, we're dealing with visible pollution again, right? And here we're talking about these very insidious, uh, invisible pollutants. So, um, yeah, so how do you personalize this issue and make people care? Yeah, it's a real good question, and I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I mean, obviously, this is something that is very subtle, but you can still 
um, connected to people, you know, in any way possible. So as we're talking about pregnant women and children, bringing up the connections and the potential risk factors for children, your readers, children, um, you know, hopefully that rings true to them and they can see if you try to connect the dots for them and, and connect it to various health factors and the kinds of products that are in your home, um, you know, that hopefully can uh, get get across to readers. Um, beyond, you know, it's it's a bit of a stretch maybe to use those anecdotes of, of people quite as much since it is more subtle, but you know, that can work. Um, I know in my reporting, I've leaned on some scientists to kind of bring <laughs> bring some um, some personal experience to to the issue, so scientists' experiences and discoveries perhaps kind of shed light on what's going on behind the scenes that's bringing some of this some of these issues to light. Um, yeah, beyond that, it is it's a difficult one, but trying to bring it home and trying to relate it to what what people can do, what kind of products they can avoid, and just raising raising awareness that it's hard to avoid those, so they care. So as a scientist, I can tell you that I know we're part of the problem. We don't make your job easy. Um, we don't like to just come down with black and white statements. We like to tell you all the gray areas and why qualify everything we say, and that doesn't make for a compelling story. Um, so when I stumbled into this field, the learning curve for me was really fast because I talked to a lot of reporters. Um, and every reporter I talked to taught me something new, but mostly what I learned is scientists really suck at talking to people. We're terrible at this. So I've been trying to dedicate my life to, to trying to get the next generation of scientists better prepared to talk to anyone and to realize that it's their job. Um, but for me, this was really graphic. As, as Lynn indicated, my first brush with this was my mice were accidentally exposed when somebody washed my cages in the mouse room with the wrong detergent and damaged the plastic, and we just saw this immediate change in our data. So every time I would talk to reporters, at the end, you almost always ask, you know, so is there anything else we should have asked or, or, or anything you want to tell us? And I was just on the rampage about baby bottles because we tested baby bottles just because as a way to get polycarbonate plastic that wasn't high temperature. And when we exposed them to this detergent, they fell apart immediately. And I went, oh, my God. Um, and I started talking to parents. They said, oh, yeah, you know, we put them in the dishwasher and, you know, we wash them because you want them to be really clean and sanitized. And they start to go hazy after a little while. And it was like, oh, my gosh, then I know they're leaching tons of this stuff. And then they get sticky. Now they're really leaching this stuff. So I almost always said, you know, one of the things that concerns me is we're putting these products into the hands of the most vulnerable segment of our population, our babies and infants, because baby bottles at the time were almost all polycarbonate plastic. Well, I repeated this message a couple times. Then I got a call from a baby bottle manufacturer. What the heck's going on here? We're getting all these calls from consumers. And then, don't you know, all these new polymers just came on the market like magic. And I went, oh, Wow. It's not my science that's going to change anything. It's my ability to talk to people and tell them about my concerns. But that's a hard message for scientists because we don't, we don't do that well. I'm watching you guys at this conference. You're all extroverts and you talk to each other and you, 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 know, you have fun. <laughs> you should come to, come to one of my meetings. <laughs> uh, Joe or Tamara, yeah, I'd love to hear from you guys, yeah. 
So I think part of the kind of personal packaging of a couple of years ago, I, I, I tried as I might to get funding on the hair products work that we did, you know, way back when could not get funding because it wasn't something of interest to the scientific community at the time. What made it of interest was a circling back from public awareness and the press covering the stories finally. And so hair products are a big deal to certain communities and certain populations as are cosmetics to women and personal care products and so on. Oftentimes these days when I talk to men, because men do come up now and say, why are you only studying women's health? Um, you know, you have to think about what touches home for the different populations that you may be covering stories on and making that personal to them. So just as much as like as a woman, I having had two children, you know, thinking about what did I, what was I personally exposed to during pregnancy? What were my children being exposed to during pregnancy? Because these are able to cross the placenta. We, they've been detected in amniotic fluid, the fluid that's around the baby um, and, and so on. But it's also circulating in my body. What what does that mean? And so being able to, and you all know this, the magic of storytelling much better than I do, but that a lot of that is identifying what personalizes it for the population or community um, that you're you're working with. And so I'll just give another quick example. Um, what has come out of that is I was contacted about three months ago by a company uh, named Black and Green. And oftentimes I get the feedback or the pushback, well, um, you know, there are safer products on the market, but it's not, um, you know, an economic um, solution for black women. So like, don't, we're not going to provide those options because they're not going to buy these, these products that are greener or safer. And I'm like, where is that coming from? So black and green made their own. And so they now are a marketplace that allows for safer products uh, to be vetted and to come through. It was founded by Dr. Christian Henderson, who's a professor at George Washington university. Um, and um, you know, these types of things, people will advocate for themselves. And so kind of getting the story from their perspective too, uh, the advocate's perspective and the kind of new people on the block, if you will, that are trying to find solutions within their own communities when they're left out of the conversations. And I just add to that uh, what Pat and Mara said about um, consumers driving the change. And that's huge. And I think that I kind of feel like of all the different parts of this, that's going to be the major differences or the, what's going to make the major difference. And so maybe just empowering people, um, talking about what they can do to change exposures in their own lives and talking about what they can do to, to, to pressure chemical companies and things like that, because that's, I think, is what really is going to work. Yeah, that's a nice segue, because I, I, I wanted to talk about um, what is lovingly referred to as the toxic whack-a-mole um, game. I was, we were out in the reception and they had the uh, REI had the BPA free bottles and I kind of eyed a couple people that were taking them and cuz this has ruined my life covering this um but but I I'm hoping one of you can talk about you know we frequently see these BPA free phthalates free makeup um water bottles um can we assume these products are 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 free of other toxins i know that um you know the the bisphenol family alone has kind of uh, made a name as being another thing so if you could talk about that the alternatives that we're seeing just jump in they're not free of other toxins and some of them still have bpa in them 
<laughs> so they're not BPA free necessarily. Um, but yeah, just to um, everyone else can and speak on this as well. But um, these alternatives, um, a lot of them are called regrettable substitutions. Um, BPS, BPF, uh, there's, I think, 20 or 30 bisphenols or BPs, um, and a lot of them have shown to have similar, uh, uh, the same, more um, activity than BPA. If I can add to that, I think for bisphenols, there's probably over 50 now. Okay. <laughs> and it's better living through chemistry, right? We have the ability to tweak a molecule and make 50 different iterations of it now, um, which is great. Um, but in, in the case of bisphenol A, it doesn't mean that it's any safer. So we handed them, in effect, the best marketing tool we could ever have given them. You know, Well, BPA-free, okay, now it's not BPA, so technically it's BPA-free, and it's just as cheap for us to make, but they'll now pay more for it. So, you know, we learned a lot that we can't just ask for, take this one chemical out, we have to say, free of bisphenols. Um, but that doesn't help consumers, and it comes back to this, the way regulatory the regulatory system works now, they can introduce these onto the market, and we don't know that they're coming on. So we can't keep pace. We don't even know what to test. We don't have standards to test these chemicals. It's a huge, huge problem. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, at, le at least one more, and then I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, please. This is really quick. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about BPA, and I just wanted to highlight a few others that you guys may want to just be aware of um, that are in the pipeline. So perfluoral alcohol substances um, like PFOS and PFOA, um, you know, voluntary phase out, you know, more than a decade ago. Um, but what they did was they just replaced them with the shorter chain uh, versions of those. And what we're seeing is some very similar adverse health outcomes there. Um, phthalates as well, Brian, you mentioned, and, you know, they replaced it with a chemical called DENCH. And so some of our recent work is showing that DENCH is also um, showing some reproductive toxicant effects as well. So just wanted to highlight some of those just to make you aware. Also, want to jump in um, antibacterials. You might have heard of triclosan and triclocarban as being bad. Those things have been phased out, but there's a new chemicals in antibacterial soaps. So if you look on the back of a soap um, container and it says active ingredient, such and such, I have some of them here. Uh, I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> Benzaconium chloride, things like that. Um, those things have been shown to have effects as well. Um, so just to jump in with the uh, little TEDx plug, um, on, our on our website, uh, TEDx.org, um, there's a list called the List of Potential Endocrine Disruptors. So unfortunately, we're not going to be updating that, but there are um, over a thousand chemicals on that list. So if you type in a chemical, um, you can see if there's been some evidence for that chemical. And it's divided up into different categories, categories of personal care products, pesticides, et cetera. So there's information on that fact sheet at the back of the room, or you can come talk to me. Yeah, and ironically, so e where I work, ehn.org, we're going to be taking some of TEDx's materials and, and having them live on in, in perpetuity. Um, so I'm going to ask another question, then I, and then I would love to open it up and hear from some of you. Um, so if you want to start thinking about those um, so, so full disclosure, Lynn is working on a big investigation for EHN. I've been, we've been hanging out uh, digitally for for a year now, and I know, and, and I know that you've been doing a lot of um, 
FOIAing uh, for the FDA and things like that. I was wondering if you, and, and I would love to hear from others, on techniques for reporters to, to investigate this, uh, kind of go beyond just finding a new study and reporting on that, um, and resources they can use. Sure. So, um, yeah, I've filed a lot of FOIA requests. Um, I don't know who here was in yesterday's session on FOIA, but uh, there was a lot of good advice passed along there, and I will reiterate that. Essentially, uh, first big thing is start early and send as many as you can out early because it takes a while. Um, some agencies have been a lot faster than others. For example, the NIH beats out the FDA by a couple months at least. Um, so I learned that. I think the more you can zero in on your target, um, narrow down your search, that certainly speeds things up and helps you at the back end of having to go through thousands of documents. So for me, that meant talking to as many sources as I could, um, trying to get the key names involved in various things, the time frames for when things were happening. In this case, it was had to do with the Clarity BPA study that Pat brought up. But trying to zero in on your target, um, definitely critical. And then beyond that, as far as this investigation has gone, um, I know it's come up that the federal government is maybe reluctant to put some people on the phone. Um, so I've, I've run into that for sure. And it's hard to get around that too much. Um, I have had some luck just even with YouTube, um, there's been there's there was footage of a conference with some of these um, individuals um, going back a ways. So I ended up being able to kind of indirectly talk to them, um, or at least fi find them interacting with others, asking questions that um, that I could use. So yeah, it was really just as many conversations um, as possible, getting out the the key information to find the people to track down and you know we all as reporters we know how that goes it's the more conversations the more um rabbit holes you can go down but definitely the more questions that come up and and uh lead you to hopefully some good stuff there's a flip side to this which is we are getting foiled constantly not by you guys um but by people who work on behalf of industry. And it's really annoying because our public institutions completely support it, will provide everything without cost. Um, and it's, it's a real problem for us because it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And scientists don't like it at all. Um, but then every paper we publish, we get attacked um, by industry. And there's always letters to the editors. So there's two sides to this for you. But you guys need to use it to your advantage. So, so I will say, with working with Lynn on the FOIAs that we filed, so, so an interesting way to look at this is uh, this, this, uh, we weren't FOIAing um, data and methods in science. Uh, we were FOIAing what are they talking to each other about while they're doing the science. Uh, and if you think about it that way, especially when it's something controversial like, um, you know, in this case they're testing BPA and they, and they don't agree with people like Pat, um, there's disagreement. And we're finding there's disagreement at the federal government. Uh, and when there's disagreement, there's a story, right? Um, so we've been able to paint a real picture of what's going on behind the scenes, uh, not, not, again, not with the methods, but with people um, not agreeing with each other at how our tax money is being spent to protect our health. Um, 
So does, if anybody has questions, I, I think you probably know the drill at this point. It's SEJ mem members who are working reporters first. Uh, and state your, say your name and say the question loud, and I'll repeat it, and we'll all have a good time. So uh, industry has long disputed the studies, uh, saying they can't replicate them within the uh, current federal regulatory framework. So what is it going to take to uh, get past that, to have regulators, regulators um, recognize the risk? And is there hope? Which is always a great question. I know one place to look towards that is Europe um, and the European Union and their REACH regulation. And they have a big endocrine disruptor um, part where they are trying to tackle this, but it is a huge issue. And I, I believe, I don't know that much about REACH, so hopefully I don't say something wrong, but I um, believe they are also looking into things, uh, no threshold, so basically banning a chemical. Um, they're, and I think some of these chemicals, like BPA, there is no threshold. I mean, they're looking at lower and lower amounts are causing problems. Um, so I think Europe is way ahead of the U.S., definitely in that uh, regard, although there's still a lot of red tape and issues there. So hopefully someone else can talk about reach a little bit. So, Liza, you're just trying to get my blood pressure up this morning, aren't you? <laughs> we talk about this constantly, and we joke that the old school toxicologists have to retire or die to change the system. Um, but there, it, we, we are seeing change. I keep coming back to Clarity BPA because it's such a, a illuminating study because it was an attempt to get the, the, the classic toxicological studies together with the independent academic studies and ask why there are differences. It, in, in terms of understanding that, it was an abject failure, but in terms of understanding why we have the problems, it was really, really illuminating because it's like putting oil and water together. You know, the way we design studies, the way we do things are completely different. Um, and I think there, there's some really huge problems. I mean, basically, we're, we're using a really blunt tool, tool to try and assess, you know, the, the risk these chemicals pose as opposed to academic studies where we're using really, really fine tools to examine very minute aspects of development. And so it's, it's oranges and peanuts to a certain extent. Um, but it's also really serious because we can't continue to study chemicals like this and we can't keep pace. So we do have to ask for change. I like to tell people this all the time because I think People really labor under the assumption that the government's here to protect us. Well, maybe not so much right now, but they have in the past. Um, and I think the onus is on us, and I, by us I mean scientists, to really make it clear that you know, they're not taking all the data into account. They're not really fairly analyzing what's out there. And they, I hear this all the time that, you know, well, these studies aren't carefully vetted. And they are so carefully vetted because it's hard to get grant money. It's hard to get your studies out into peer-reviewed journals and to, and to get them, your work taken seriously. So I think they're vetted far more carefully, and we need to shine a whole heck of a lot of light on this. So please do. Can I just throw in one thing on the, the good news side, maybe? Um, so I did, as part of this reporting, uh, visited a company that has kind of found a new route to developing new chemicals. So BPA is also found, or has been historically found, in the can lining. Um, so they're working, they worked directly with academic experts in endocrine disruption on developing 
an alternative. So rather than doing the regrettable substitute process of just swapping out one chemical for something that's very, very close, they actually kind of did the same thing because it's actually a bisphenol, but they went through, they did the legwork to work with the academics to ensure, actually test it before it went on the market to ensure that there was no endocrine activity. So they're still working on that right now, but it kind of shows a model of maybe, maybe that can be replicated. It's true. Uh, green chemistry is really, really huge here. And the interesting thing is we thought we had a lot of these, these chemists really thinking along these lines. And when they realized how treacherous the waters are, a lot of them backed away. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really, can we design chemicals that up front we know are going to be safer and then test those chemicals before they go onto the marketplace? I'm a fan of shame, shaming, too. Uh, and... and I think shaming works, and and uh, just uh, six just yesterday, uh, New York State uh, is forcing uh, manufacturers of menstrual products sold in the state to put their ingredients on them because they are been found to contain phthalates um, and other toxics. And that was work of uh, um, uh, an assemblywoman there who just didn't let this go. Um, so now, who's going to buy the, the 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 menstrual products that have that? Right, the market is going to respond. So. Uh, any other questions? Yeah. Sure. So um, the question is, uh, uh, for scientists and, and scientific journalists, how do you hope the, uh, the next uh, crop, maybe younger journalists, new journalists uh, coming up, approach you as a scientist um, to, to, to hopefully push issues like this forward? I'm going to go back to something Pat said earlier. So as scientists, we are not trained to speak to, to journalists. It's not a, a kind of standard course or... And, um, and I remember as a student uh, being told that, um, you know, be a little afraid, <laughs> uh, which is not the right message either. Um, and partly that that messaging comes from a, another place, which is, you know, there's a thin line between uh, being a scientist and being an advocate. And so not wanting to have our work put into a, a kind of a, you know, a picture of, of advocacy. Um, and I would say similar to Pat, that it is our responsibility as scientists um, to do that, to share our work with the public and to learn and to be trained in a way. So as I was preparing for this, and Brian, again, I, I think this is fantastic, I was thinking, you know, do you all ha um, currently work closely with scientists in the training, pro on the training side, and how might we create spaces, um, particularly in, um, you know, some of the academic, uh, sorry, and I can't speak either, <laughs> academic um, settings um, that are pushing out a lot of this work so that our students, because a lot of this is coming from our students and postdocs um, who are very much on the ground doing um, this work, how, how can we train them to feel comfortable speaking with you all and to be able to more effectively communicate in, in lay terms? I just want to add on to that because I'll tell you what my colleagues say. They call you out of the blue. They expect you to, act, to talk to them right now. <laughs> and then they get it wrong. And so what I've tried to explain to them is what your life is like. You're on deadline lots of times. You have, you're trying to get both sides of the story. And, you know, you, you get it wrong because we can't articulate it clearly. 
So one of the things that I would like to see you guys do is really be more blunt with scientists. Look, you know, I have this side of the story. What I need is the other side of the story. I'm on deadline. I need to file this study this afternoon. And when we go into our gobbledygook and take you into the trees, you need to say, okay, okay, can you back that out and frame this in a way that my readers are going to understand? Because, you know, a reporter early on, USA Today, told me, you know, eighth grade education, Pat, and I was stunned. Okay, so you just have to, you have to educate us. I'm sorry, but please do. Please help us. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll just reiterate what Pat said. Um, I think that is, that's the key is to really get them to talk. I th isn't it fifth grade level? <laughs> I, I think so. Fifth grade. <laughs> Okay, fair enough, great. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, and Pat's great, so you know, hopefully she can mentor other scientists to, to speak in the same way, but dead, bring it down to earth and just keep asking, keep poking, okay, simplify that a little more, or can you give me an example, or you know, relate that to somebody, a mom at home with two kids, that kind of thing. And I just found it really helpful when people send emails with questions ahead of time. <laughs> so you aren't caught off guard. So even a, even a couple hours before would be awesome. Yeah, go ahead. So, so the question is, uh, the, the studies that have found these chemicals crossing the placenta into the uh, in prenatal exposure, um, I just totally, animal were they animal studies or human studies? I'm sorry. This has been shown in both um, animal and human studies. Um, so Pat and I can't figure out quite when we met, <laughs> but, but we did meet and, and there is um, very nice synergy in the work that she's doing on the, in the animal space and the work that we've been doing in humans. And so um, about a, a year ago, I particip participated in a conference, an international conference where we were showing on the human side, biomonitoring um, cross country biomonitoring, looking at um, human specimens, including amniotic fluid. And then there's also studies looking at placenta and placental um, um, gene expression disruptions, like what Pat was talking about, that these are actually, these chemicals can actually change the placenta and what messages the placenta is sending out. Um, and so what, you know, what, what are the implications uh, of that when you're talking across multiple generations? So not just one, but across many. But can I just tell you what our world's like when you start talking about this? Because I talked at a Sierra Club meeting north of Seattle a few months ago. And I really wanted to deliver the message clearly to a lot of people that I knew were concerned. I do animal research. A lot of people hate that. I've done monkey studies. A lot of people think those should never be done, but they were so informative in terms of this and actually being able to see the chemical cross the placenta in the fetal compartment, in the fetal ovary. I also do human fetal tissue studies, which makes me a felon in the state of Indiana. Okay? So what do I, what I stand up and say when I talk to this group of people? I decided I'm going to talk to them about the mouse. I can explain why the monkey studies were important. I'll allude to the human studies, but I won't tell them we, we use human fetal tissue research. So these are hard times for scientists, and there's real reasons we're reluctant to tell you a lot of things, because it makes us targets, not only for industry, but for people who have no understanding of science and scientific research and why we do the things we do. Okay. 
I just want to jump in really quick and make a plug for um, something called systematic review, which you might have heard about, but it's a, a type of review process that uses all kinds of data, animal and human. They put it all together and they come up with these um, these uh, answering certain questions. So I, um, that's being used more and more in environmental health research and when more systematic reviews start coming out, um, making sure they get the coverage because they really are answering these questions. Um, put the animal and the human together and you get you can get a really solid answer about some, what these things are doing. I hate being the one having to pick the next question because I had my hand up yesterday in the session for so long. I did see a hand back there and then I'll get up front here. Yeah. So the question is, uh, right now chemicals are innocent until proven guilty in the US and is there any movement to flip our regulatory structure so they have to be proven safe first? No one wants to answer that one. I would say there's more of a movement to flip our whole government right now. Um, the only way I can answer that is to say that we know that the existing testing doesn't work well and there's been a movement to change that testing system. Scientists never agree on anything, right? That's our job is, you know, if you've done it, then I'm going to prove you wrong. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy about exactly how we should test. Should, can we just use cell models, et cetera? But in terms of saying wait before anything comes on the marketplace, we need to adequately test it. We're turning a monster ship and trying to, trying to turn it completely around. And, and I just don't know how you do that effectively. And I don't know that there's any movement afoot to do that. I think there are a lot of people that recognize that that's what's wrong with the system. But if you can come up with a way to change it, let's talk. A thing came out called the Endocrine Disruptive Screening Program um, in the government. Hello, hello. Um, that has not really moved forward at all in the last 20 years. I mean, there, there is a just back and forth. A lot of uh, there's a lot, there's work being done on it, but it's not uh, it's not going anywhere really. I don't think. I I think Europe is doing a better job, yeah. right? Yeah. There there's a thing called a tiered protocol um, that. As I understand it, they've, uh, in Europe, they've started using a little bit, maybe, in thinking about testing chemicals before they go on the market. But the U.S. is, as usual, lagging behind. And I do want to say, we've alluded to a thing called Clarity a couple times. Um, so Clarity was this giant effort. Pat's part of it. Um, Lynn's investigating it. Uh, I would encourage you to go to ehn.org in the next couple of weeks to see a big old story on it. Um, but that was kind of aimed to do that. You know, it was under, it was specifically for BPA, but it was getting people like Pat, who say it's a problem, with the government, who say it's not, together, combine our studies, uh, and then sing Kumbaya. Um, and so that the first part happened, but they're not, they're not singing. Um, so that'd be a good place to look to see how an effort to do exactly what you asked is, is just kind of uh, up in flames. So the question is, in, in looking at emergency, emerging contaminants or contaminants that are studied in mice, um, uh, traditionally that's maybe looked upon as not as solid, and we're wondering if, that is, uh, um, if that's still the case or if those studies are often uh, later replicated in humans or confirmed in some way. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem because we know that in many respects rodents do not are not a good model. Um, for other things, they're an excellent model. Um, for the kind of work that I do, actually we can use monkeys, mice. We can use a nematode and get the same answer. Yeah, so it's wild. Um, but I think this is one of the problems is, oh, it's another mouse story. It doesn't get 
it doesn't engender much enthusiasm because we don't know how much it replicates. On the other hand, it's a monkey study. Holy cats, people will get really upset about that, right? So we don't have a perfect model, which is why there's been a movement to say, wait, we should be doing this all in tissue culture. A lot of people like me say, you know, the brain doesn't develop in a tissue culture dish and neither does the ovary or the testis. We can't look at these things this way. And we have to have some of these models and rodents are a powerful model. But when they're done in conjunction with epidemiological studies, monkey studies, they become much, much more powerful. Just want to quickly follow up on that. There are, so we just finished um, um, publishing a report that was um, um, a National Academy's report looking at the transgenerational effects of um, exposures from the Gulf War, of which uh, many of those exposures were identified as endocrine disruptors. And um, so in human studies, we can't look at right now um, very easily, and certainly not from a cost-effective way, um, transgenerational, meaning across multiple generations. And that is something that we did have to rely um, on the animal literature um, very heavily for. And we can bolster it with some of the human findings that we, we have, but certainly looking across you know two, three, four generations um, because when you think about it, um, if a pregnant woman is exposed and she has a daughter, it was her daughter and her granddaughter that were exposed. So then you, to look at transgenerational effects, you have to get to the, the great-grandchildren or great-granddaughter. Um, so we can't do that in a human study easily. We have to use animal studies. So there's, you know, to answer your question, th there's times in which that is the evidence that we're relying on. Just real quick, I want to throw in one nuance there. Um, within rodent studies, there's also quite a bit of variation between species. So that actually comes up in the Clarity BPA study. The choice of the species of rat used, for example, there's, there's some um, debate over whether or not that's sensitive enough to detect certain effects, whereas a mouse that other researchers might use might actually detect it. So. And the EPA uh, just recently uh, did announce that they're trying to reduce animal testing uh, for, for toxics which um, it sounds good uh, to, to PETA um, and, and others, and it's probably a good thing to, to do, but they're doing it without um, uh, filling that void. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I'm sorry it's taken so long for me to get to you. We should hang out. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like me and you should have a beer. <laughs> compare, compare emails. Um, so, so, the, so the question is, uh, how do you cover these compounds that we've been talking about without um, coming across as a chemo chemophobic and, and, and kind of giving fuel to the fire of uh, movements who are maybe not as rooted in scientific science. I think that's a huge problem. And when we worked um, our work with TEDx, we were doing work with autism. And it's hard because there might be chemicals and external exposures that are causing or contributing to autism. But they probably aren't vaccines, and there's been a ton of research showing that it's not. Um, so, uh, and 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 it is true that kind of getting on board with like mommy bloggers and mommies and things like that to to kind of get some of these chemicals off the market is really important. So, I think that's a really fine line. I don't quite know how to deal with it. Um, I would say at least with TEDx, you know, we're not the reporter side, but we just tried to be as scientific as possible, as transparent as possible. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone else has anything more helpful. So we're finding some really interesting associations with um, 
benzophenone, which is one of the chemicals often used in sunscreen. It's a phenolic compound um, of the same class as bisphenol A. Um, and um, a lot of it is related to uh, metabolic disturbances um, um, with respect to that. I think the, the challenge is that is too on the science side of things um, where you'll see associations that are you know adverse, they're bad health outcomes, and then we'll see associations where there may be studies that show null associations and then you know there's nothing going on and then we'll, we'll find studies where there's, protective effects. And as a, a journalist trying to communicate, you know, in this particular space, this is what we're seeing, um, you know, based on the study and trying to pro provide balance for the readers. Um, so I think, I, I do not have the answer to your question. This is kind of a, maybe a layering, but, you know, communi communicating that in some situations, in some circumstances, it, 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 it has been shown to be, um, you know, have an adverse effect and in others, uh, you know, um, it's the jury still stills out on whether or not there there are, are associations and trying to provide that balanced argument as opposed to you know epi is very much criticized epidemiology is criticized for um, you know broccoli's good today broccoli's good you know bad tomorrow coffee's good today coffee's bad tomorrow you know and so you know how do you communicate that effectively but I think for what you're covering being able to say this is what we're seeing in this particular setting. I have two thoughts on that. So one is, and I'm sure you come across this, things like BPA, things like phthalates, flame retardants, there is a big body of research. Um, and, and I find it really helpful in, this, in the story to, to go in to whatever new, new shiny study you're looking at and build that case that, you know, while we can't prove this link, here is a, is a big chunk of evidence um, that points in this direction. We also, I did a story on fluoride uh, this year, uh, and, and fluoride is another one of those movements which is full of uh, tinfoil hats. And, um, uh, and so I, the way I avoided that and still got a lot of emails and phone calls was to, to go to the next step and dig a little deeper into the statistics, which um, I'll be honest, we don't always do. Um, just to, to point out that the levels that are in your water are probably not hurting you. This was for people who had very specific health impacts or previous health issues. Um, to go that extra step to really uh, drive the point home that uh, not every uh, correlation is the, the end of the world. Kevin, yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, uh, with all the attention headlines on plastic pollution, how does that intersect with the chemicals we're talking about? Uh, including landfill leaching and things like that? Um, so there's research starting out kind of on microplastics and how they might be contributing to some of the chemicals that people and the animals and the environment are being exposed to. And just starting uh, uh, research on showing microplastics in humans. Uh, so I think that's something to, to look out for is the microplastic story. And with the, with the idea being that these microplastics into our body, we, we have contaminants that are hooking on? That are A couple things. Uh, contaminants can hook on, and the, the particles themselves can cause endocrine-disrupting uh, effects. And uh, the chemicals in the microplastics that we've talked about can leach out in that way. Yes, Margie. So the question is, in upcycling plastic that would other be, otherwise be discarded, are we creating um, new hazards and should we ride bicycles? <laughs> I don't think there's. <laughs> I don't think there. Right and roads. Yeah, um, there's a definitely. Uh, you have to look at what exposures uh, the 
what's the word, um, how, how easily it is to be exposed to something. So what we look at first is food, drink, air, uh, dust in your house, things like that. A bicycle seat, I would tend to say on a lower mount, but I don't know. There, no one has done this research, I, I don't think. Um, I will say I do not use recycled paper products because they are full of BPA from the receipt uh, from receipts that have been contaminated. So I I just use new paper products. Um, they probably BPA in them as well because everything does, but uh, less. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, so the question is, what would be kind of the primary exposure routes for these if we were uh, ranking them or looking at the, the biggest ones? Okay, so part of this is what people have studied uh, versus what, what, what may be um, known. So first of all, to going back um, to the earlier point that uh, we've studied food a lot. And so food packaging by, you know, is definitely a source of exposure for many of um, these chemicals. And so we know that that is, um, you know, a, a, a quote unquote, a primary source. Um, we've also, you know, we know receipts, store receipts, um, as well as, um, you know, other things, furniture um, with the flame retardants, as well as the plasticizers and so on. It's only, I think, in the last, you know, 10 years or so that we've been thinking about personal care products. And, um, and again, I go back to who are the primary consumers of personal care products as to why we haven't necessarily studied those or thought about them um, in this context. But that is also another source of exposure. Um, and I do think it varies by population. So if you're talking about children and infants, you know, thinking about toys and what, you know, what's going into their mouths. Um, what mats are they crawling around on or sleeping on in the daycare setting situation? If you're a gymnast, what, what are you being exposed to um, in the in the gym? Um, and so on. So I, I think, again, this varies by population as far as what ranking you may have um, and what, what setting you happen to be, be in. But it's really important, going back to this poster child for endocrine disruptors, BPA, it really taught us a lot in terms of how important understanding the route of exposure is because industry argued for many years and still does that we, we're exposed to very low levels of this stuff and we metabolize it so fast it just doesn't even matter. And it is true that if you swallow it, your body will metabolize it really rapidly. But it's not true that if you take it in through the skin, that will happen. And so we didn't know initially about these, these thermal printed receipts and the fact that they contain BPA. And it's a really great way to get a good dose of it, especially if you've been eating greasy french fries or put hand lotion on. Um, and monkey studies that we did actually really demonstrated that the route of exposure really impacts how much of this stuff remains in an active form in your body. So understanding how we're exposed is critical, but it's also really difficult because we can't know until we look. So this is a full-time job for about five million scientists. And I think one other key angle on that, if we talk about multiple different ex uh, routes of exposure to multiple different chemicals, well, we're also exposed to all these at the same time. So thinking about multiple exposures and that cumulative effect so we can't look at maybe necessarily each chemical in isolation and expect that to be the only thing driving. So we're at the time limit. Uh, Jay did tell me that uh, there's a half hour break. So if there, I don't know if there were any more questions. Um, yeah, that's a good question. So for somebody who doesn't maybe cover science all the time, how to take an article that you do want to turn into a story for your daily newspaper 
um, and assess it quickly to make sure it's good science and, um, and, and should be covered. I don't know how helpful this is because it's also kind of a sciencey thing, but there are checklists for going through papers to see how well the methodology was carried out and how much bias might be introduced into the study and basically how accurate it might be. Um, I can probably get you links to those. <laughs> okay. Okay. Health News Review was set as a, as a good re resource. Excellent. I, I oftentimes, too, um, uh, you can just, you, you know, someone like Pat, who I, who I know, <laughs> or, or at least met today, but I've talked to a few times, it's helpful to have uh, a scientist or two that, you, uh, that, that, that are your pals. <laughs> you know, as much as a source can be a pal, but somebody that you're comfortable with just saying, hey, on background, is this something that's worth covering? All right, one last question. Yeah. So the two questions are, is there a list of, of, of products like uh, recycled paper that maybe we should be avoiding if we're worried about this? And the second question is, um, uh, what is the likelihood or, or, or looking at um, Alzheimer's and uh, autism and possible links to the compounds we've been discussing today? I'm going to answer your second question. Um, first and give a little uh, background on maybe your first question. Um, the answer is we do have growing evidence that endocrine disruptors um, are associated with autism and um, autism, autism spectrum disorders as well as um, behavioral outcomes related to spectrum-based behavior. So um, that that research um, is, is these days is growing um, in looking at um, not only chemicals but also uh, broader classes of endocrine disruptors. So thinking about metals for example, um, as endocrine disruptors um, and, and, and looking at that. So, so yes, um, less evidence um, to my knowledge in the space of Alzheimer's, but certainly related to other um, um, neurological outcomes of aging. And, um, and I, I would suspect that increasingly there'll be more evidence growing as we continue to be able to study these things. Um, but we do see some links um, in adults with respect to neurological outcomes that um, are linked to these. As far as websites of like whole. Um, there's a few. Do you Environmental Working Group, yeah. ewg.org. Um, they're, they're, they're most known for their Skin Deep database, which is, um, you know, I think makeups and personal care products. But EWG does really great work on toxics and, and has a really good way of communicating uh, package-wise uh, resources for people. Yeah. There's a group called the Clean Label Project, and they're actually out of Denver here. Um, and they test... Um, uh, different kinds of consumer products, baby foods, formula. They did a sunscreen one. So they're continually um, putting in products to their um, to their testing. Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, if, if any of you want to talk about this more, uh, EHN, you know, where I work, we cover this all the time. I'd be happy to give you sources and, and, and talk this stuff more. I hope you're not all sad and going to walk around avoiding stuff. And if you can give me a hand for the, the wonderful speakers we had today.